text this morning is Psalm 94. And so if you have your Bibles, um, I'd invite you to turn with me there right now. And hear now the word of the Lord. I will be reading out of the English Standard Version. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve, O Lord. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can the wicked can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in late uh, summer of 1944, this would have been at the height of World War II, uh, the people of Poland had reason to be hopeful for the first time in a long time because it looked like the five brutal years of German occupation were finally coming to an end. Um, you see, in the late summer, early fall of 1944, the Soviet forces to the east were on the move. Uh, they were closing in on Warsaw, the capital of Poland, and the Poles in Warsaw could begin to hear faint sounds of gunfire and artillery in the distance. And so things were beginning to look up for the people of Poland. And with news of the Soviet advance, together with radio encouragement that they were hearing in Warsaw from the Soviet Union, encouraging them to rise up against their German occupying force and that aid would be provided if they were to do so, the underground Polish army decided now that now was the time to rise up. The time was ripe and to rise up and push the Germans out of Warsaw and out of Poland for good. And so on August 1st, 1944, that's exactly what they did. In what's known as the Warsaw Uprising, the, the underground Polish army in Warsaw rose up and successfully drove the German forces out of many of the pockets in the city. Things were looking up for Poland, but victory was short-lived because just two days later, the Germans struck back with a vengeance. Himmler, who was uh, one of the most powerful men in the Nazi party, uh, apparently ordered that Warsaw be raised from the surface of the earth after that happened. 
When German reinforcements slowly started to trickle in to the city a couple days later to quell the uprising, that's what began to happen. Um, not only did those who bore arms against the German occupying force suffer, but so too did the average Polish citizen, regardless of age and regardless of gender, quickly became apparent that the resistance was going to fail and that a heavy price would be paid in the process. But to make matters worse, to cap off everything that the Polish people went through during that time, in their moment of desperation, the Soviet forces who had been closing in on the city all summer, the, the same Soviet forces who promised them aid and support should they rise up against the German occupying force, suspiciously paused their advance just outside of Warsaw. Ultimately, they weren't going to help the beleaguered Polish home army in Warsaw, and they even refused to let British and American planes resupply the beleaguered militias in the city. Instead, the Soviets calculated that it would be far more advantageous for their interests to let the Germans and the Poles have at it, and to go in only after every side has devastated the other. In the end, the Poles in Warsaw, who had hoped that they could rely in the summer of 1944 on the Soviets to come to their aid in the hour of need, were duped. During the five years of occupation by German forces, they were treated horribly, and then, to cap it all off, they were used as cannon fodder in the Soviet Union's plans for conquest. Well, I think there's an analogy in this historical event that happened so long ago to how we as Christians sometimes view God, especially amidst our pilgrimage in this often unjust, cruel, and sinful world. That is, when the church is beleaguered by oppression from the world, from sinful flesh and the devil, what the Heidelberg Catechism calls our three sworn enemies, and it seems like whatever we do in the face of that, we just can't get a win, how many of us have wondered, particularly in our more frustrated moments, whether God is more like a cruel, idle, and self-serving tyrant rather than the benevolent, all-loving, and powerful king that the scriptures declare him to be. When we see the church suffer at the hands of evil, wherever that evil might arise from, are we prone to view God as a God who fails to uphold his end of the bargain as we make our way through this world? Well, these are some questions, I think, that swell in the hearts of many Christians who face injustice in the world. And yet, fortunately, the scriptures are also not silent on these issues. Because in our psalm, we're reminded that while justice so often seems fleeting, and the church regularly suffers at the hands of her enemies, that we have a God who promises to come to our aid in our hour of need, and promises to vindicate his people. So our big idea this morning is this, the Lord of vengeance will vindicate his people. And as we, as the church, await for that to happen, our psalmist gives us three instructions. He instructs us in three ways for how to wait well until that day arises. First, he calls us to pray to the God of vengeance. Second, he calls us to wait well for the God of vengeance. And then third and finally, he calls us to hope in the God of vengeance too. And so first, pray to the God of vengeance. This is our first point, looking at verses one through seven. 
Now, like many of the Psalms, when we read through the Psalms and we study the Psalms, we have little idea, really only a vague kind of speculation about what might have generated the composition of this Psalm or of many of the Psalms, historically speaking. Uh, But whatever the injustice that prompted the psalmist to pray what he prays, specifically in verses one through seven, our passage, that's exactly what he does. He prays for justice to be done. And in doing so, he instructs us where to turn and what to do when the church is faced with injustice in this cruel, harsh, and unjust world too. So first, look at how the psalmist addresses God. Look at how the psalmist addresses the God he prays to. He twice calls him the God of vengeance and then appeals to him as, quote, judge of the earth. Now, in our um, sanitized and affluent culture, I bet that this probably isn't the way that we often think of addressing God. Uh, Perhaps this kind of address even comes across to you as the stuff of a hellfire and brimstone fundamentalist preacher. Because if we had it our way, I'd bet that we tend to address God more like God of love or father of outcasts. And to be sure, those are appropriate ways of addressing God, too. But in appealing to God the way that our psalmist appeals to him, he's reminding us of the fullness of who God is. In the words of Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Understand that we just cannot divorce God's wrath from his being and have the God of the Bible. But when we think about that, neither would we want to do that either. Understand that when we think of, of vengeance, we often think of vengeance through our own personal experience of vengeance. And we know that for us, vengeance is inevitably at all times wrapped together with our sin. After all, how many of us are prone to call down legions of angels when we're cut off in traffic? We don't see unjust situations as clear as we think we do. And often we imagine that our righteous, our anger is a righteous anger when very often it's just not. Uh, We just don't see unjust situations as clearly as we think we do. And therefore, um, we have to understand that our experience of vengeance is clouded by sin through and through. But for the sinless Holy One, the God of the universe, we have to understand that his vengeance as the God of vengeance is from start to finish a right vengeance. It's it's even a good vengeance because God sees things as they really are. He hates sin in, in a way that we just don't. And then he always acts out of the perfection of his being for his glory. And so it's good then that he's called here a God of vengeance because he cares about issues of justice and he is in no way indifferent to issues of evil when they arise in the world. For these reasons, the scriptures often tell us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And in fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The scriptures call us from start to finish to leave vengeance in the hands of the God of vengeance. And rather than pursuing our own perverted views of it, our own perverted form of it, to instead join with the psalmist in appealing to the perfect justice and righteous vengeance of God to do so on the church's behalf. 
But in our prayers to the God of vengeance, who or what are we asking him to pour out vengeance upon? Well, as we continue in our psalm in verses 3 through 7, we hear the psalmist's name, the perpetrators of injustice. And they go by many names. In verse 3, they're called here the wicked. In verse 4, they're called evildoers. And then in verse 8, they're called fools. But perhaps more significantly than what they're called is what they're accused of doing in our psalm. Our psalmist accuses them of, quote, crushing and murdering the most vulnerable people among God's people, widows and sojourners and the fatherless. And then like their spiritual father, Lamech, actually boasting about the injustice that they wreak upon the world and upon the church. To make matters worse, these workers of evil are also those who apparently are in a position of affluence and power, too. Um, If you look further down in your text, you'll see in verse 20 that these wicked rulers, or they're described as wicked rulers, this is the same people as the fool and the wicked and the evildoers earlier in the psalm, Um, we see in verse 20 that they're described as wicked rulers. And if we were to translate that phrase literally from the Hebrew, it would come out to be a throne of destruction. So that the passage reads here, uh, can a throne of destruction be allied with you? Now understand, that's a window into very likely who the perpetrators of injustice probably were in the psalmist's historical context. Because in Israel's history, the one who ruled over Israel, the king of Israel, the Davidic king, was supposed to occupy what another psalmist calls the throne of judgment. Um, The Davidic king was supposed to occupy a throne that was characterized by righteous judgment and who rendered justice, um, uh, under whose rule justice flourished in the nation. But in a parody of that throne, the psalmist tells us that the one who actually sits on that Davidic throne, likely in the time that he's writing, in whatever situation, whatever the historical situation is, is apparently a wicked ruler of destruction. Now, again, we may have no idea who the psalmist has in mind with this reference or when he writes, but we do know from the Bible that many of the kings in Israel's history who should have ruled with justice and righteousness, who should have occupied a throne of judgment like King David did, were actually quite horrible kings who in reality perverted the throne into a throne of destruction, to use our psalmist's language. Uh, King Ahab, for example, was one of those kings, one of those horrible kings. And in, uh, in 1 Kings 21, we read a story of how Ahab and his wife Jezebel were responsible for a huge miscarriage of justice among their subjects. Um, in that text, we're told how Ahab, he coveted the property of an average Israelite next door to him named Naboth. And he coveted the property so badly that he and his wife Jezebel abused the systems of justice. They um, recruited others to lie about Naboth's character, and then they had him murdered. Far from protecting his subjects and reigning in righteousness, Ahab's throne was characterized as a throne of destruction, to use our psalmist's words. He prayed on an average Israelite subject to take whatever his heart coveted. Now again, whatever the specific situation of our psalmist, this is the kind of tyranny that prompts him to lament the way he laments. Whatever the precise situation he faced, he experienced injustice like that in an unjust world. And as a result, what does he do? Well, he cries out to the Lord in lament and in prayer. And yet at the same time, perhaps for some of us, the psalmist's response in these first seven verses of lament and prayer may seem to us wholly inadequate in view of the situation that he faced. After all, what power 
we might reason from time to time, do words really possess when we're confronted by those who wish to do the church serious harm? When faced with the kind of injustice that the psalmist and the faithful of people of God often face in this world, his response may seem akin to putting a gorilla glue on a cracked foundation to repair it. It's inadequate, we might think, for the scourge that he and his people are up against. And yet when we take seriously what the Bible has to say about prayer, these assumptions of ours, I think, are challenged head on. Um, in Revelation 8, 1 through 5, we, we read um, a really important vision from the Apostle John that I think serves as a helpful corrective for how we often view prayer in this broken and sinful world. Now, in that text, just to summarize, uh, we hear the Apostle John recount his experience of peering into the heavenly throne room where he sees angels ministering before the throne of God. And then as he looks into God's throne room and he sees this worship scene unfold, he looks particularly at one of these angels who holds in his hands a golden censer. A censer is a metal vessel where incense is often burned and the pleasing aroma rises up from it. And so he has this golden censer in his hand, burning incense, but this is no ordinary incense either that he is burning. Rather, the incense burned in the heavenly temple are understood to be the prayers of the saints, which have ascended from our lips into the heavenly places. And these prayers, we learn, have real power. As John concludes his vision, again, this is Revelation 8, 1 through 5, in verses 4 through 5, we read this. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Understand what John's communicating here. He's telling us that when we as the beleaguered church pray in the name of Jesus Christ, it's as if our prayers ascend into God's heavenly throne room where they saturate the air as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God loves to hear the prayers of his children. He covets the prayers of his church, even as we lament our three sworn enemies on this earth. But then he does something with our prayers when we pray according to his promises. Again, by the end of this vision, what happens to our prayers? Well, they're thrown back upon the earth with fire and cosmic upheaval results. In short, John is telling us here that the prayers of the church are no last resort of a beleaguered people. This isn't some case where we're hoping against hope and all things being lost, we throw up a prayer as a last resort. Rather, prayer, according to God's promises, carries real power. Now, to be sure, our prayers never change God's mind, more often than not change us. But when we pray according to God's will, God uses our prayers as a means of accomplishing his divine purposes. These are, are words mediated by the Spirit when we speak them that contain real power. And so how then do you respond to injustice in the world? Is it your first thought to fantasize about how you're going to get equal with those people who render such injustice? Or is it your first response to drop to your knees in prayer? When news spread in Persia that prayer to anyone but Darius was forbidden, what do we find Daniel doing? Or rather, Daniel goes home, and the first thing that he does is he drops to his knees and he prays to the God of vengeance. Would that be our response too? 
when we're faced with whatever injustices in the world the church faces, and especially when we look beyond ourselves and we see the worldwide church suffer in so many places under the thumb of those who wish to do her harm. But while we pray that God would one day bring his just rule from heaven to earth, and well, our psalmist gives us the language and the form to pray when we're faced with some of these things. In the next part of our passage, our psalmist also our, our psalmist then offers us instructions on what we should do as we wait for justice to be done. And so this leads to our second point, waiting for justice, where our psalmist speaks into the issue, not necessarily of what we say when we experience injustice, but what we do in the intervening period before God eventually, at the end of the age, shines forth with perfect justice. And in addressing what we do in this intervening period of time, we notice that our psalmist addresses two categories of people. First thing he does is he addresses the fool. These are presumably the perpetrators of injustice in his own day. And then after that, he turns and he addresses the church, the righteous people of God. And so first he addresses the fool. And to the fools, this is what he has to stand. He has to say. It's, it's a really simple message. He says, understand. Understand. Understand that as you're engaged in whatever hostilities that you're engaged in against the church, that the God of vengeance sees everything and hears everything too. A number of years ago, um, one of my one of my pilot friends used to be a pilot, and so I have a lot of pilot friends, told me a, a funny story of something that he did one evening while he was flying over a major interstate. Um, now, the plane that he was flying in had a radar dome in the cone of the airplane, which was used for um, looking ahead in the sky to see if there was bad weather. And so what you could do as a pilot is, if you wanted to see if there was bad weather ahead of you, you could move the beam up and down in the sky to, to see what altitude bad weather is at and what you should avoid as you as you continue to fly fly on forward. Well, in flying over a major interstate one evening, I think this was I-95 in Florida, he decided to have some fun on a clear night, and he swept the radar beam down towards all the cars on the highway. And when he did that, he immediately saw a long string of red lights suddenly appear on the interstate. You see, what happened was that everyone who was cruising down the interstate with a radar detector in their car suddenly heard their detectors activate and thinking the Florida Highway Patrol was responsible for lighting them up, they all slammed in their brakes to avoid getting clocked at far too high of a speed. Now, perhaps some of us can relate that in the car, there's sometimes little to restrain our driving habits when we're convinced no one's watching. Maybe that's true of you. It's certainly not true of me. Um, but as soon as we're convinced otherwise, well, what happens? Our hands click to 10 and 2, and we become model citizens on the road. Well, so too, the psalmist desires here that the fools and the wicked, whatever we want to call them, those who plot evil and injustice against the church with seemingly little to restrain them in the process, would in fact recognize that the God of vengeance sees, the God of vengeance hears, and that they best slam on the proverbial brakes on their wickedness before it's too late. So that's the first thing that he wants the fools to understand. And then after this, the psalmist then calls them to understand something else, something about history. We read, he who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? In summary, the psalmist is calling them here to understand how throughout redemptive history, God has never allowed evil to exterminate his people. He may have handed over his people for a time to nations like Babylon, 
But then he turns against those wicked nations, as the prophets often pronounce, and uh, he judges the nations for their maltreatment of his people. And just as God eventually rebuked Babylon, so too, the psalmist tells us, that he'll eventually rebuke any evil that arises against the church today. And then finally, he calls on the fools to understand one more thing, that their thoughts and plans against the church are ultimately in vain. To paraphrase from another psalm, Psalm 2, while the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, what does God do? Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Lord holds them in derision. And so this is the message to the fools. Understand that the Lord sees and hears. Understand that he has a habit of overthrowing those who would wish the destruction of his people. And understand that your most well-thought-out plans are, in fact, futile. Now, as a brief aside, uh, perhaps you're here this morning, and, and while you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a Christian, maybe you have questions about Christianity, but you're not quite there yet, you're also not one who's actively conspiring to do harm against the church. And that's good. Um, fortunately, I don't have many neighbors, unbelieving neighbors, who are planning to plot the overthrow of the church either. And that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that these words are at the same point not for you either. Because according to the Bible, there's no neutral ground in our allegiance to spiritual kingdoms. You're either allied with the kingdom of God or you're allied with the kingdom of Satan. Uh, Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 12, 30, where he, where he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And so the appeal then is even as you read these words and you think to yourself, surely these have nothing to say to me because I'm not plotting the overthrow of the church, to instead pause and to know that just like the wicked and the fool in this passage, so too, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you will remain in your sin, you will be at enmity with God, and there will be no hope. The appeal then is to turn to Jesus Christ and become like the righteous, the blessed man in this passage. And that leads to the next address we find in this second point, where the psalmist turns and he addresses the righteous. And he offers the righteous, he offers the church several important truths to understand about this intervening period of time before Christ comes again on the clouds too. First, he tells us there are things that we as the church need to understand too. We need to understand that our present sufferings in this unjust world are actually a function of God's providential discipline of his people. And they're intended to drive us closer and closer to him and his word. Our sufferings, in other words, as, as difficult as they are when we go through them, aren't in vain. Because according to the psalmist, um, suffering under injustice in going through that crucible, the church is indeed heartened by the promises of God. Now, that doesn't make suffering or injustice good. But just as God uses even evil purposes, evil things for good purposes, so too in whatever tempests arise against the church throughout redemptive history, God often uses them to drive his church deeper into himself and into his word. Charles Spurgeon appropriately writes this, the afflicted believer is under tuition, that is, under teaching. He is in training for something higher and better, and all that he meets with in this world is working out his highest good. Now, when we look through the rest of these verses, in verses 12 through 15, uh, the psalmist relays to us a number of other important truths that we're called to keep lodged in our hearts as well as we wait. Um, he tells us in verse 13 that our suffering is only 
temporary. Verse 13 implies that. Um, he tells us that the Lord won't forsake his people. Verse 14 says that explicitly. And in the end, as verse 15 confirms, justice will be done. But while there's a lot for us as the church to know and understand as we wait for the God of vengeance to arise in a full and final sense at the end of the age, the Bible elsewhere fills out these instructions of what it means for us to wait in this present evil age in a different but important way. And so in the book of 1 Peter, for example, the apostle Peter um, gives some really important instructions along these lines. Um, he calls the church to likewise consider ourselves to be exiles and sojourners in this world of injustice, to know that uh, we will never be at home in this world until Christ comes again, and therefore that the church should also expect that a life of faith will be hard in this hardened and hostile world. Just as our psalmist has assumed injustice is part and parcel of life under the sun until God's vengeance arises, well, so too Peter assumes that for the believer, the church bears witness in a hostile and unjust world. And yet, while setting that tone throughout 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter also gives very helpful and very specific instructions for the Christian citizen as he relates to his leaders. Specific instructions for the Christian servant who serves unjust and cruel masters. And specific instructions for a Christian wife married to an unbelieving and unholy husband. And in each of these situations, the vulnerable people of God, the vulnerable believer, is called to assume a very ordinary and very humble posture of submission. Now, to be sure, we should qualify what that looks like uh, in each of those situations. For example, should an unbelie- should the wife of an unbelieving and unholy spouse submit herself blindly to physical abuse? Well, of course not. But qualifications assumed, Peter calls the afflicted church, he calls afflicted believers, rather than seeking to turn the tables in vengeance upon those who may treat them far less than as just, to rather assume a very ordinary and very humble posture in all of those relationships. Remember, vengeance belongs to the Lord, and therefore, one of the things that we're called to do as we await the God of vengeance isn't to retreat from the world, nor to shake our fists at the world, but rather to assume to ourselves an ordinary, humble posture of faithfulness as we approach whatever calling the Lord has called you to as you navigate this world. There's an um, apocryphal quote that's um, linked to Martin Luther. Uh, Apocryphal means something that uh, gets attributed to somebody, but they they didn't actually say it. Uh, And it goes like this. Apparently, Luther uh, is is reported as saying, if I knew the world was to end tomorrow, I would still plant an apple tree today. Uh, Now, as I understand that quote, the point seems to be, whoever said it, is that even if we knew the world was going to end tomorrow, that still wouldn't obviate or remove our responsibilities to live lives of faithfulness to Jesus Christ today. Understand, friends, that we don't know when the God of vengeance will arise, even though plenty of charlatans claim otherwise. We don't know when Christ will come again and make all things new. We don't know when justice will be done and heaven and earth will be one. But one thing we do know is that God loves us. We know that God won't forsake us. And we know that God calls his people to live very ordinary lives of faithfulness, regardless of whether that day is tomorrow or 2,000 years in the future. And so in short, waiting well in the promise, waiting well until the God of vengeance arises at the end of the age requires that we first and foremost saturate ourselves in the truth of who we are and who God is 
But then it also requires that we pursue our very ordinary responsibilities, whatever they are, with faithfulness and humility in the process. But just as we're instructed to appeal often to the God of vengeance, that was point one, and wait well for the God of vengeance, that was point two. And the final part of our psalm, we're then called to hope in this God of vengeance. So up until now, the psalmist has engaged us for the most part, if you're looking at your text, in the third person. But in our closing verses, beginning in verse 16, he gets a little bit more personal in that now he recounts how the God of vengeance, again, the same God we pray to, the same God for whom we wait, is also the same God who has proven in his individual life to be a great help throughout the entirety of it. First, the psalmist recounts to us, beginning in verse 16, a story, a story of how the Lord sustained him in his own personal experience when there seemed to be little hope. He tells us in verse 17 that if the Lord, in fact, hadn't sustained him, there would be no one else who would have been able to do so. In verse 18, he tells us that had the Lord not held him up, his foot would have given way. Now, this is a typical expression in the Psalms that signifies uh, the overwhelming flood of despair and doubt that can sometimes trickle into the hearts of God's people. Uh, But even when the psalmist thought that he might throw in the towel on his faith because of doubt and unbelief, what happened? Well, the Lord held him up. And then in verse 19, uh, well, in the throes of despair, he tells us that it was the Lord who, who essentially restored in him, to quote Psalm 51, the joy of his salvation. Now, of course, if we don't know who wrote this psalm or when it was written, it's impossible to say very much about the specific situation that he recounts in these verses. But fortunately, that doesn't mean the main point's lost on us. Because he's telling us that when all hope seemed to be lost, and it seemed as if injustice and evil in the world would speak the final word, that the Lord sustained one of his sheep and showed himself to be the God who loses none of his people. In the world of um, zoology, there's a group of animals known as the Lazarus taxons. Um, that is animals who were once thought to be extinct, but who then made a sudden reappearance. Uh, so, for example, there's a bunch of them. Uh, the New Zealand um, takahi, this red-beaked flightless bird, uh, was thought to be extinct for 50 years before it was suddenly discovered in 1948. Um, the Bermuda petrel is another, who's a nocturnal seabird was thought to be extinct for 330 years before it was rediscovered in 1951. And there's a bunch more of examples like that. But essentially, when the scientific community effectively wrote off a number of species, a Lazarus taxon comes when they suddenly rediscover that the species is indeed not extinct. Well, understand that throughout the world and throughout the history of the world, there have been many places and many times where the church has likewise seemed to many outsiders to be extinct. Many places where, because of a confluence of persecution and and little missionary activity, the church seems to be altogether absent. And and of course, those are situations when we encounter them today even that require, that call for our prayers. But while efforts have always been made in the history of the world to extinguish the church, we find time and time again that the church never disappears. Rather, for 2,000 years, the Lord has sustained his church, and he will continue to do so, even raising up the church in places where she presently seems to be completely absent until the end of the age. In this intervening period, then, as we wait, or as we pray, rather, to the God of vengeance, and we wait for the God of vengeance, we also place our hope 
in this same God who promises to sustain each and every individual Christian in their faith, in their pilgrimage, and more broadly promises to preserve his church until his coming vindication. And as we approach the closing verses in our psalm, the psalmist leaves us with precisely that promise, namely that the one who sustains us will, in the end, vindicate his church. But as we come up to that crescendo, which really hits for us in verse 23 of our psalm, the psalmist briefly, and maybe even surprisingly, sounds a note of dissonance before he gets to the end. And he reminds us that that while we can trust that God will sustain his church in this world of injustice, the wicked rulers will very often band together to condemn the innocent to death. Literally, as verse 21 says, to condemn innocent blood. Now, this is a tragedy that the persecuted church faces in every time and in every age in church history. But in its most tragic form, well, this took place 2,000 years ago, when the only perfectly righteous and innocent one, Jesus Christ our Lord, was condemned to die a sinner's death. Now, the word condemn in this passage literally means to declare someone guilty. And the greatest miscarriage of justice ever known to man We experience injustice in our lives, and we get really upset about it. But the greatest miscarriage of injustice happened 2,000 years ago on the cross with Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfectly innocent one and righteous one, was condemned to die on a cross, a sinner's death. He was, as we'll confess later in the Apostles' Creed, he was crucified, and he died, and he was buried. But then Jesus Christ, our Lord, was vindicated in the resurrection. He was was shown to be who he claimed to be. And because of Jesus's finished work 2,000 years ago, we have hope that in Christ and only in Christ, we who have been justified through faith alone will also be vindicated at the end of the age too. It may be that the church walks through a fiery furnace of persecution first. That's what's happened throughout world history. And Jesus himself tells us that that's what we should expect. Jesus promises that if the world hates you, it hated him first. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. But in the end, we know that Christ will deliver the kingdom of the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In the words of our psalmist, the Lord will bring back on them their iniquity and will wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Friends, the same God who called us out of our own folly, out of our own sin, who pulled us from the away from the edge of the pit that we were digging for ourselves in our sin and called us to his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ is the same God we hope in right now who will one day come again and bring all things to right. But as we prepare to wrap up, let me leave us with one takeaway, one thing to consider as we prepare to leave and then, or I guess first and foremost, come to the Lord's Supper and then eventually uh, depart this morning. And that's this. Learn the language of lament in the present. Learn the language of lament in the present. So earlier in the text, the psalmist cried out to the Lord. He said, oh, Lord, how long? Now, this is what we know as the language of lament. And it's language that's scattered all over the scriptures. Even the saints in heaven, according to Revelation 6.10, cry out from beneath the altar, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. When we face injustice or rejection or grief or wickedness, 
in any form directed at us for our faith, there are several ways that we could respond. Some of us might choose to bury our heads in the sand and, um, and, and do anything so, not, so as to not face any kind, of, um, any kind of injustice in this world. On the other hand, some might fight back by firing off a tirade on social media and waving our fists at the world. But a biblical answer is quite different from either of those two approaches. And one of the biblical answers in dealing with these things is to lament. When we lament, we're, we're not just complaining about our lot. Rather, we're bringing our sorrows to the one who can actually do something about them. Uh, lament is the honest, raw, and trusting response of God's people when they don't know what to do, but they trust that there is one who does. So whatever the precise situation of our psalmist, notice that he laments. And in doing so, he teaches us the language and pattern of lament and encourages us that whatever the injustice or ostracism that the church faces in the world, and in whatever age she faces it, the lament of faith should be spoken from our lips too in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who promises that he loves us and promises that he will come again and bring all things to right. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God of, of vengeance, Lord, we very often um, do not address you as the psalmist addresses you here. Uh, Lord, we, we uh, and as a result, sometimes we don't have a clear view of what biblical justice looks like or um, what promises to take hold of. Uh, and yet, Lord, you remind us of so many important things in this passage. You remind us uh, that, that um, though you are the God of love and that you take a loving disposition towards your church, uh, that you also have such a hatred for sin that you will judge sin when you usher in your perfect righteous kingdom at the end of the age. Father, I pray that as we um, consider who you are, that we would pray to you as the God of vengeance, as we look forward to the coming of your kingdom at the end of the age, when you will put away all sorrow, all pain, all suffering, and all injustice. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.